Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Miller. The mission of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics is to expand consciousness, stimulate thought, enhance mental and physical health, and encourage community. Good morning, dear friends. Good morning, dear listeners. If you want to call in during this program, the phone number is 707-937-5103, but please wait for at least 20 minutes or a half hour until you call in. Prior to calling in, if you want to send us an email right away during the program, send it to dj at kzyx.org. That's dj at kzyx.org. Today, I'm going to have the privilege of introducing to you and interviewing for you Rabbi Michael Lerner, Dr. Rabbi Michael Lerner. In addition to being a rabbi, he's also a clinical psychologist. Michael Lerner has been described as America's preeminent liberal Jewish intellectual. Stay tuned for this wonderful interview. And in addition, he's going to have his colleague, who also works with him on Tikkun, which we'll talk about, Peter Gable. Peter Gable just joined us at the last moment, and I've got a story to tell you about him. So stay tuned for this great interview with these two men. But first, news and notes in psychology and medicine. Well, you've been hearing me rant on, if I may use that word, for years about what I consider to be the most serious of all the serious problems facing the United States. It's the obesity epidemic. Presently, close to 70% of the American public are obese or overweight. The fallout from that is the most expensive, both in terms of personal health, psychological, physical health, and cost. It's the most expensive of anything the United States is facing. Recently, the members of parliament in the English government have recognized that there's a growing concern about the damaging impact of sugar on health because sugar it contributes to diabetes. It's a major contributor to obesity. Sugar has been dubbed empty calories. You've heard me talk on this program about sugary drinks to avoid sugary drinks to do TWO, tap water only. Well, finally, the English government is so concerned about the effects of these sugary drinks on children that they are preparing a crackdown on price promotions of unhealthy food. They're making tougher controls on marketing, including the use of cartoon characters that are used to get children to drink these sugary drinks. Parliament is considering a ban on advertising unhealthy foods on television before 9 o'clock at night. Parliament is considering clearing the labeling of products, making clearer labeling of products showing sugar content in teaspoons. They are working to drive, to force the industry to reduce sugar in food and in drinks, as has happened with salt. So this, this, dear friends is progress. At the very same time, Coca-Cola, through their chief scientist, who has recently resigned, 
Dr. Applebaum, a food scientist with Coca-Cola, they have been on a campaign to cultivate relationships with top scientists in order to, in their words, balance the negative, the negative press that Coca-Cola is, has been getting uh, as a result of all the sugar in their drinks. One of the top obesity researchers in the country, working at the University of Colorado, Dr. Hill, has been caught writing a letter in, in, in involving himself with Coca-Cola, and here's what he says. I think, I think we could provide a strong rationale for why a company selling sugar water should focus on pr- promoting physical inactivity. But this would be a large and expensive study, Dr. Hill says, but it could be a game changer. So what's coming out is that Coca-Cola has been spending millions of dollars, millions of dollars, in order to promote physical inactivity as the cause of obesity, not their sugary drinks. Hill writes to executives at the company saying, it's not fair that Coca-Cola has been singled out as the number one villain in the obesity world. I want to help your company avoid the image of being a problem in people's lives and bring back uh, a vision that the company brings important and fun things to the world. So here we have scientists being co-opted for money into misleading the public, but let us not be misled. It's the sugar in the drinks that's the calories in these sugary drinks. And I remind you of that important statistic that if you do nothing more, if you don't change your activity, don't change your food, don't change anything in your life, but drink one soft drink a day, including Coca-Cola, one a day, at the end of the year, you've gained 15 pounds. Three years, you've gained 45 pounds. That's where it's at with regard to these sugary. There's no doubt about it. You can do the math. Just multiply the number of calories in the drink by 365, divide by 3,500 calories in a pound, and you will see that it's over 15 pounds. Well, folks, we've got to stay awake. And part of staying awake is getting enough rest so we can stay awake. And part of that is not working ourselves like slaves into oblivion. Sweden, Sweden is reducing the workday to six hours a day. People are working from 8.30 to 11.30. They're taking an hour off for lunch. They're working from 12.30 to 3.30, and they're going home. This is something for us all to think about. And by the way, their salaries are not being reduced. Okay, and now, and now for our interview with Rabbi Dr. Michael Lerner and Peter Gable. Michael Lerner, as I said, is the preeminent Jewish intellectual thinker in the United States. He's written many books, including The Politics of Meaning, Surplus Powerlessness, Spirit Matters, and many others. He is the editor of Tikkun, the national Jewish intellectual magazine, along with Peter Gable. I'm not sure of Peter's title, but he'll be telling us to Peter's title in, um, uh, in Tikkun. I want to read to you a, a quick uh, comment by um, former President 
Jimmy Carter, who says, Rabbi Michael Lerner provides us with a brilliant and hopeful vision of how to transform the Middle East from a cauldron of violence to a vanguard of peace. Jimmy Carter says, I hope every American will read this book and apply its lessons to change how we deal with the Middle East. This is about, uh, on Michael's book, Embracing Israel and Palestine. The reason Michael's on with us again, he's been here before, I'm pleased to say, is because of his concerns about the Syrian refugees. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, Michael. Uh, hi. I'm glad to be here with Peter Gable. Uh, and uh, the two of us have uh, worked together for 40 years and uh, very um, delighted to be able to talk to a few of the progressives in Mendocino, in Mendocino Coast. Is that where, that's where you're located, right? The, we broadcast from Mendocino, but people are listening um, not only all over the country, but I'm quite positive that people are, leave, uh, are listening in Germany. And in other okay. and, and, and in Paris and in London because I communicate with people there. Great, wonderful. Um, Peter, are you there? Yeah, I'm here. Peter Gable and I, uh, somewhat indirectly through my brother uh, Edward, we go back mm, close to seventy years. Mm-hmm. Very close to 70 years. And I'm going to tell a story about my connection to Peter Gable because it, it's related in, in ways to what we're going to be talking about today. One day I, when I was uh, a teenager, uh, my mother got a phone call from Peter Gable's mother. Uh, Peter Gable's mother was a famous uh, television personality. Her name was Arlene Francis, and she was on a program called What's My Line? Uh, she and the other panelists would have to guess what the guest's uh, occupation was. And it was a fun and, and uh, an interesting program in early television. My brother, Edward, and Peter Gable were classmates at uh, Hunter College Model Elementary School in, uh, in Manhattan. This, uh, this school was an interesting school. It was uh, based on a, on a concept that perhaps if you had gifted teachers teaching gifted students something special would come out of it correct me if i'm mistaken about this peter but that's what my memory tells me it was about that, yeah that was the line and yeah, that was the line and so thousands of students were tested all over new york city and a small number of them were selected for this school and they got these gifted teachers to come and teach there peter and edward were in the class together and one day uh, uh Peter's mother, Arlene, calls my mother on the phone. I hear my mother crying, and she's very upset, and I say, what happened? And she tells this story. you want to tell the story, Peter, of what happened with that weight falling out of the window? Uh, a, uh, a barbell had been used to hold down a curtain that was blowing on a windowsill. It was not placed there by either of my parents, and I was, I was not in town, actually, at that time. But the, uh, the barbell rolled out the window, and it fell eight stories, and hit a man on the head and killed him as he was coming out of the Pavillon restaurant in his 50th birthday. It was a catastrophe for my family and for the family, injured the victim's family. As I recall, the man was a farmer from the Midwest, is that correct? I don't know that. Yeah. I don't recall. 
But he he was just walking down the street when this he occurred. He had come out come out of the, uh, the, a downstairs restaurant. Uh huh. Now that 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 event had a major impact on my life and on my thinking, because I went on to to study philosophy and to understand the world, and I was I read Einstein's comment that God does not play dice with the universe. I read the comments of people who are looking for order in what seems like a chaotic universe. And that incident, Peter, convinced me then and for all time that there are random events in the universe, that things sometimes just happen. And friends have argued with me about this and argued that even that event... Even that event had some kind of order to it, but for me, I, I uh, I've come with the belief, to the belief that uh, that there is there is random, but then there are other things that are definitely not random, and one of the things we're going to be talking about today is the issue of the Syrian refugees that I know is very much on your minds. But before we go right into that. I want to ask Michael to please to please elaborate on a concept from his book Spirit Matters and I I'd like you to because it'll lay the groundwork for this for this uh discussion of the Syrian refugees please talk to us Michael about your concept of emancipatory spirituality Well <clears throat> I mean simply stated emancipatory spirituality is a spirituality that uh, does not focus solely on uh, internal transformation, but recognizes that the internal transformation needs to be connected with a an external transformation of the economic and political arrangements that we live live in. Uh, many there are many people who think that they can get healthy simply by working on themselves, but it's almost impossible to be healthy in an unhealthy society because every day and in every way. The society pushes people to um, adopt and uh, think of other people primarily in terms of what they can get from others, how the others can be of use to our own self-interest, to our own projects, to our own needs, and uh, to not respond to other human beings as embodiments of the sacred. And uh, that happens all day long in the world of work for most people, and uh, in which almost every moment you're you're aware that you're, you are going to be judged by how much you can contribute to the bottom line of the institution that you're part of. If it's a nonprofit institution, then it's often to the ego of the person at the top. But uh, for, for uh, most people work in uh, profit-making institutions, profit-oriented institutions, in which uh, they have to contribute to the bottom line, or they eventually will lose, uh, lose out themselves. As they will not get promoted or they will get fired or uh, their whole institution may uh, collapse because in the competitive marketplace, those, uh, those corporations that don't advance themselves um, end up not having, getting the money that they need in terms of investments to expand and to be able to compete, to lower their prices so that they can compete with other corporations and they get pushed out of business. The whole structure of the society is set up in such a way as to uh, reinforce the notion 
that everyone has to look out for number one and maximize their own self-interest. So uh, an emancipatory spirituality is a spirituality that at once commits us to our inner work, uh, because there's no way of building a transformation in the society without um, transforming ourselves to the greatest extent we can, but simultaneously acknowledging that we are not going to be the whole embodiments of the highest spiritual values of the world when we are in, enmeshed in uh, the, uh, the logic and the daily workings of a um, materialist and uh, looking out for number one, a selfishness, a selfishness-oriented social order. We need to engage in that at the same time. That's why we created Tikkun Magazine, in fact, to, to try to... Um, put forward this, uh, this sense of an emancipatory spirituality or what we sometimes call a politics of meaning, uh, because uh, we recognize that human beings actually, while um, th- uh, being pushed into this kind of a social order day in and day out, both in the economic realm and also in the cultural realm, because every movie, every television show, it's all about, they're almost all about who has more power over whom, who can get on top, who can maximize their own self-interest the most. Those are considered the winners. The extremes of that are Donald Trump in the the current reality, but uh, they're all, uh, to some extent, we're all infected, every one of us, even those of us who are spiritual, are infected by the cultural uh, adaptation to the economic reality. So... um, so our t- so we set up tikkun um, and now our interfaith, not just Jewish interfaith network of spiritual progressives, in order to bring together people who want to build a new bottom line instead of the bottom line of money and power to build a new bottom line of love, caring, kindness, generosity, ethical and environmental sanity, and uh, enhancing our capacity to respond to other human beings as embodiments of the sacred and enhancing our capacity to respond to the universe with awe and wonder and radical amazement rather than looking at the universe primarily from the standpoint of uh, can something here be turned into a commodity and sold. So that's, in short, what the emancipatory spirituality is all about. And uh, in a way, um, I I should mention that we're celebrating, uh, the Jews amongst us are celebrating Hanukkah this uh, this coming Sunday night through the following Sunday night, and we at uh, Beit Tikkun, my synagogue, are inviting everybody on this call to come to our Hanukkah party on Sunday night, the 13th, uh, in um, at the Northbrae Community Church in in Berkeley, California. Northbrae Community Church at uh, at 5 5 p.m. on that Sunday night, the, uh, the 13th of December, because the Hanukkah celebration is about this. It was about uh, resisting the, um, the, the power over uh, worldview of Hellenistic society that had conquered Judea back some uh, 2,100 years ago, close to 2,200 years ago, and tried to impose on the Jews that notion that... Um, that you look at the world primarily from the standpoint of what you can get from others and not from the standpoint of seeing others as embodiments of the sacred and deserving of love and caring. And so Jews rebelled against that. The Hanukkah, Hanukkah was a, a, um, celebrates the victory that seemed so improbable. 
because I know when you hear what I'm talking about in terms of a new bottom line of love and caring, it seems so improbable today. But that's what Hanukkah was about, was celebrating a time when there was another so improbable struggle, because here were these basically Jewish farmers being conquered by the uh, Alexander the Great and his empire, and, uh, and the descendants of his empire, and Jews deciding to fight against that, and everybody said, that's crazy, you can't, I mean, not just other people, but fellow Jews were saying to, to, to those who wanted to resist to the guerrilla struggle, that's ridiculous, you can never change the, the world, they have all the power, you've got nothing. And so the, the message of Hanukkah that we're celebrating uh, this coming, uh, this Sunday the 13th of, um, uh, of December at the Northbrake Community Church in, in uh, Berkeley, California, and people can come down there even from Mendocino or Solano or wherever you, wherever you live um, to, uh, to celebrate. The message was this, the spirit of the people is greater than the man's technology. That the individual, you know, that human beings, when we get together, and that's why we created this network of spiritual progress. When we get together, we can build a different reality. We, and so don't be realistic. Go for your highest vision. That's what we're all about. Peter, when you hear Michael talking about spiritual, uh, the word, using the word spiritual and spirituality, what does that mean to you? What do those words mean to you? Well, I, I uh, of course, Michael and I are on the same wavelength, although Michael is more deeply steeped in Judaism than I've been. Uh, my kind of complementary worldview to Michael's is that the socioeconomic reality that Michael is describing is, in my view, cemented by fear of the other, and by that I mean fear of each other. That is a long legacy of that each in our hearts we long to fully recognize and see one another in our whole uh, uh, humanity, and we know this from every newborn child has the fullness in the eyes that manifests their desire not just for eye contact but for true presence with the other person. And we've inherited a long legacy of fear of the other in which we deny our longing to deeply connect with the other person and become mutually present to one another and instead see each other through the distancing of... Uh, Peter, one second. Here. Excuse me, I've got to interrupt. Is, there's some kind of static or something coming along the line. Is either one of you, if you're moving paper or if there's anybody around you doing anything, kindly ask them to stop because it's coming over the, uh, the airways and it's blocking uh, Peter's uh, con a conversation. Okay, Can, how, how is it now? And much better, um, much better. Okay, okay. So uh, what I w was saying was that this, this, that we are in a, live in an environment in which we deny our inherent... Michael, can you, uh, Peter, I'm hearing it again. Michael, can you hear that in the background? It's as if there's some kind of... There's no, some, I don't hear anything. Oh, you're clear over there, Michael. I think it's coming from your side, Peter. Okay, well, I will... I will uh, it up so that my microphone is not touching my shirt. Oh, good. See if this works. All right. Okay? You sound clear already, Peter. Okay. So what I'm saying is we've inherited a world that is characterized by a fear of one another that leads us to withdraw deeply into ourselves and to not make ourselves fully present to each other. And this is uh, kind of embodied in the institutions that we live in and the hardening of our distance from each other and in our, um, our 
our competitive and, and self-interested world that Michael was describing. So for me, the spiritual dimension of politics and of social life in general is to, op- to, a- a- to approach the world in an open-hearted way and to bring the possibility of authentic mutual recognition and connection into the world so that we can become truly present to each other. In my life, that occurred not through, not through a spiritual practice, but through politics, through the social movements of the 1960s in which we all, a whole generation, emerged out of our isolation and separation into a, a profound moral connectedness to each other that made us fully present to each other and created a tremendous transformative energy that ricocheted all over the world for a time. And it was through that process that I realized we had the capacity to create a loving, uh, authentic universe of mutuality. And that, that, that then led to my connecting with Michael, who is in part also coming from that experience and in part coming from the, the progressive Jewish experience. And uh, that led us to, together with others, form Tikkun magazine, that emphasizes healing and repairing the world rather than fixing it or changing it as if it were some kind of external thing. The world is this web of interrelations, and our aspiration is to heal the distortions that have disabled us from fully recognizing one another's humanity. I'm going to read uh, to our listeners from... uh from your book, Michael, Spirit Matters. And this is uh, a section about spirit, saying spirituality and religion are not the same. Spirituality, you say, is a lived experience. We're hearing that sound again, gentlemen. It's coming over the air very, very strongly. Something is rubbing or touching or paper. Something is shifting there. Kindly, uh, if you can... Thank you. Spirituality is a lived experience, a set of practices and a consciousness that aligns us with a sense of the sanctity of all being. It usually involves an experience of love and connection to the world and to others. It's a recognition of the ultimate unity of all being. How does that connect with your views, and please tell us your views, on our government's position with regarding the Syrian refugees who want to come to this country? Uh, shall I start? Please, Michael. Yeah, so, because um, I know Peter has lots to say on this, too. Good. Um, um, I mean, I'll start with this, that um, in my view, um, the world that I want to see very soon is a world in which all borders are eliminated and in which people can move freely to any place in the world that they want to be. Now, of course, right now, um, if we did that, we'd be um, overrun by hundreds of millions of people. Now, why would hundreds of millions of people want to come to, to North America right now? Is it because North America is the only place where there are beautiful mountains and beautiful valleys and beautiful rivers and a beautiful ocean? Answer, no. That's not why. They want to come here because there's economic and political devastation that has been wrought in their areas of the world, 
largely due to the long history of colonialism and imperialism, uh, and more recently by the recklessness of the United States um, in, its, uh, in its wars in the Middle East, um, but also by a global economic system that unfairly distributes the wealth of, this, of the world in such a way that while we flourish and are doing great here, many, many other people are suffering tremendously, can't feed their families, end up having to give up uh, because of the, um, the trade agreements that we have uh, uh, constructed, which favor us and, uh, and disfavor or really undermine the capacity of small uh, farmers to make a living in the third world, people are desperate for a way to make uh, to feed their families. Often they move into these mega cities in um, in the third world where they end up living in garbage heaps and uh, barely able to uh, scrape together a living. Sometimes even forced to sell their kids into sexual slavery for one one or two kids in order to feed the other four or five kids in the family. It's terrible. And so um, so um, in order to deal with that. We are proposing, we have proposed it at Tikkun and the Network of Spiritual Progressives, a global Marshall Plan to redistribute the wealth of the world in such a way as to end global poverty, homelessness, hunger, inadequate education, inadequate health care. And for anybody who wants to see the details of that, you can download the full version at tikkun.org, T-I-K-K-U-N.org, tikkun.org, slash GMP, standing for Global Marshall Plan. And that plan would make it possible, without impoverishing us in the, in, in the United States, to, um, for the United States to take the leadership with the other advanced industrial countries to once and for all end global poverty, homelessness, hunger, inadequate education, inadequate health care. So, that, so that's the approach, the general approach, from which I approach this specific situation of, refuge, uh, of Syrian refugees coming, coming here. Because in general, I'm saying we could eliminate this whole problem um, of, uh, globally uh, of um, more and more refugees com- coming in our direction if we were to make it possible for people to live in a peaceful way where they are living. Now, of course, in the case of, of the Syrian refugees, what's happened was that because of the invasion that the United States um, uh, uh, created in, uh, starting in 2003 in Iraq, we totally destroyed that society and created chaos there and allowed the most, um, uh, uh, eventually, after years and years of oppressing people, of torturing people, uh, and of aligning ourselves as one of the, with the Shi'i faction against the Sunni faction and uh, uh, oppressing the Sunnis who are a majority there, um, we ended up creating a so much anger, so much frustration, so much sense of non-recognition of people not being recognized as being decent human beings, but instead being treated as though they did not deserve to be uh, recognized as human beings. So much humiliation um, that people, uh, that some people gravitated to extremist responses like ISIS. And, um, and, and, and ISIS was then able to, has been able to conquer some parts of Iraq and some parts of Syria, um, partly uh, through, because of that, partly because of the um, anger at the Syrian dictator Assad, who uh, had been, uh, who, who had been treating his own people in a horrific way. So, 
You get um, people now in a desperate situation leaving Syria, trying to escape from these crazies from um, that that have uh, and more more than just crazies. I mean, horrendous, uh, evil people, or at least I should. Well, let me say, doing evil acts. I won't say evil people, do, doing evil acts towards their fellow human beings in Syria and Iraq, and people then desperate for some place to to escape to and. Uh, and literally hundreds of thousands and uh, of them have been trying to go someplace and they've uh, m- so they've been trying to get into uh, to uh primarily trying to get into Europe but Europe is reacting negatively particularly after um the bombings that took place in Paris 2 weeks ago and so um we're hoping that some that the United States will open its door to let's say 100 or 200,000 of these just as we had done after our Vietnam War opened our doors to some of the casualties that we created in that war. So we need to open our gates to these people today. But unfortunately, instead of opening our gates to them, uh, we have this crazy dic- uh, discourse going on, particularly in the, in the Republican primaries, in which these people are being described as though they're the terrorists, when they're actually the ones who are trying to run away from Syria and Iraq because of the terrorists. They're trying to escape these terrorists. And, uh, and, um, but uh, building on xenophobia in this country, um, the um, uh, Republican, Republican Party, and not just Republicans, some Democrats as well, have uh, responded to this uh, issue by saying, no, these people are going to hurt us. We can't let them in. Meanwhile, ignoring, by the way, the violence, the, the terrorism that is actually happening in this country, by white people against uh, Planned Parenthood and against African Americans in this country, suddenly saying, oh, no, it's those people who are the terrorists. Well, we've got our own terrorists here that we, we should be worried about, when those, whereas the people, the Syrian refugees, are people who are trying to escape the terrorism. So, Well, we, uh, have, so- we have a long history of conflict in this country on the issue that you're talking about, Michael. Because on the one hand, you know, we have Emma Lazarus's you know, favorite, famous poem at that Statue of Liberty, give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free, the wretched refuse of your teeming shore. Send these, the homeless tempest toast to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. That's, that's part of our credo. At the very same time, as, as, as many listeners may recall uh, reading, in 1939, that's almost 77 years ago, Senator Robert Wagner of New York and Representative Edith Rogers, Wagner was a Democrat, Rogers was a Republican, introduced a bill that would allow 20,000 German Jewish children to come to the United States. And the wife of the U.S. Immigration Commissioner, who happened to be a cousin of President Roosevelt at the time, testified that, and I quote, 20,000 charming children would all too soon grow up into 20,000 ugly adults. Those children were turned away, as you know, and many of them were killed by the Germans. We, yes. we, we have a history of conflict in this area. Right now there are 50 million refugees around the world, and actually, in addition to that, by the way, as a side note, the United Nations says there are also 36 million slaves around the world. We'll go into that at another time, what it means to be a slave. It means to be owned as chattel. But presently, according to the, to the news media, if they can be trusted, 
35 states in the union, governors of 35 states in our union, are saying no, not that they'll be successful because the federal government trumps the states, but they're saying no to refugees. Only five states have come forth and said we'll take refugees, Washington, Colorado, Vermont, Connecticut, and Delaware, and the rest are uncertain. We've got, yes. We have great conflict, don't we, in this country about, yes. about who we accept and when we accept them. Let's let Peter come in on Please, this. Please, Peter. Oh, okay. Well, yes. Um, I think it connects to our earlier conversation about spirituality and uh, thawing out the paranoia and fear that separates us as human beings, because uh, it's, it's understandable that in, in, in a situation that Michael was describing, in which masses of people have been hurled into poverty, collective humiliation, marginalization, and meaninglessness, not only in the Middle East, but also in urban areas in the West, where these Parisian uh, terrorists came from, um, that people like that will be drawn to a substitute imaginary reality, which is my way of characterizing the ideology of you know, uh, a religious end-of-days mentality, the creation of the caliphate, all of the, the mental world that is so... Uh, that fundamentalist vision is a reaction against humiliation and the creation of a, a grandiose image of community that is totally, to my mind, understandable when you see the fate across the world of people who've been discarded in this way. So the point is to create a, 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 an approach to politics and culture that recognizes the humanity of other people who would otherwise be appealed to, appealed to by this extreme worldview. And uh, uh, that means the United Nations, it means the global Marshall Plan that Michael outlined, and the, a, a genuine effort to rebuild mosques and other destroyed areas in the... In the uh, I do hear that paper, but it's not anything I'm doing. Oh, thank you for that, Peter. It's coming across pretty strong. I know. I'll try and speak through it, but I'm, I'm not sure where it's coming from. Anyhow, so the point is to... Uh, to it's in recognizing the humanity of the other in a way that the United Nations ought to do. And in passing, I want to give Bernie Sanders credit for saying that his intention is to build a NATO-like organization to address the root causes of why people turn to these terrorist ideologies. One part of that is maintaining a generous attitude toward the refugees, manifesting our care and concern for them. I think it is legitimate for people to be afraid, and we, our side, who believe in caring for the refugees, should speak to that fear. For example, by making it clear of how, how serious the vetting process is, by indicating it takes 12 months, 24 months to be able to enter the country. It's understandable that people would be afraid, and we shouldn't be contemptuous of people who are afraid. But we should... So we should address that fear in a rational way, but also maintain a, a generally loving attitude toward people who are suffering, but also toward the rest of the world in a politics that seeks to rebuild the destroyed aspects of the rest of the world. That is, to ease world hunger, to rebuild mosques, to rebuild the 
the, the destroyed Middle East. Excuse me, Peter, let me, let me, allow me to interrupt you. I'm sorry. We've got to deal with this technical issue because it's becoming harder and harder to hear you. Right. You're Let's saying, Peter, it's totally silent in the room that you're in? Yes. And, Michael, is it totally silent in the room you're in? Well, there's noises from outside, but uh, nothing in, inside here as far as I can tell. Is there any kind of rubbing that could be going on with either of your microphones against anything? Now it's silent. Uh, it's disappeared. Whatever happened is gone now. Mm-hmm. Okay. okay, well, let's see if we can get back to Peter. You know, I, Peter, I hear what you're saying, and I hear what Michael's saying about about the disenfranchised the severely disenfranchised people, and we've heard you know, before, uh, that are being drawn uh, to, uh, to, uh, to ISIS and to do these horrendous acts. But w- what, would you, what do you say to those who raise the question, why is it then that we've got 47 million people in poverty in the United States? And by poverty, that means uh, defined by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, they make less than $11,000 a year. That means they're living on $250, roughly $250 minus whatever tax they pay per week. You know, they are food insecure. We've got 16.7 million, roughly, according to the government, children who live in food insecure households. We have 47 million in poverty. But of those 47 million... We don't have large numbers of them or even numbers of them other than these aberrant individuals who are banding together to do horrendous acts against people. Yeah, you know, this country has been very amazingly successful at convincing people who are suffering that it's their own fault. And um, the, um, the whole worldview of, of global capitalism is, uh, goes like this. Um, Every individual can make his or her own way and get what she or he deserves if she's smart, energetic, and um, works hard. And um, this ideology um, has been so successfully drummed into the heads of people in this society that when they are suffering, they often end up blaming themselves. And then they deal with that, try to, since they feel terrible about themselves, they then go to alcoholism, drug abuse, uh, addiction to television, addiction to to various uh, activities that might be good in of, of themselves, but are engaged in in an addictive way, like um, addiction to uh, sex, to politics, to uh, to, um, to sports, to various things that try to put that put put all their energy into to avoid the feeling that they have of how bad they are, how much they've screwed up their lives because they, um, because they are in a situation of, of pain or suffering and they have nobody to blame but themselves. Now, that is not the case in other societies where the, where the ideology of self-blame has not been equally successful, and so it's m- more possible for people to then say, wait a second, this has to do with what's happening externally to us, uh, what other people have done to us, we need to band together and struggle against it. Often, they struggle, they band together in destructive ways. That's what Peter was talking about when he was saying that they band together, but they have this, that instead of coming up with a vision of a decent society, they respond to older stories that they've had in their culture, which stories of um, 
of uh, tra- fundamental transformation of the world through uh, through a violent struggle, uh, an end of time struggle in which all the pain of history will be transcended by one last war. And uh, that's a theory that exists in Christian culture, it exists in Muslim culture, and it exists in Jewish culture. And this this uh, apocalyptic final end to all the suffering. So the form that it takes in in the advanced industrial societies is self-blaming and uh, and uh, huge internal pain, uh, and uh, the form it takes in other societies is often uh, uh, um, has been more in the direction of uh, these um, uh, apocalyptic fantasies, and then joining groups that uh, support that. But let's understand: there's still a minority of people in those countries who are into it. And let's also understand that we've got plenty of people in this country uh, who are Christian uh, fundamentalists of uh, particulars of uh, the apocalyptic sort who are hoping to see uh, another war in the Middle East between Israel and uh, the other, uh, and the Palestinians or Israel and the Arab states or whatever, to end history and uh, so that uh, then Jesus will come back and there will be a redemption of the world. So it's not just some other that has this, because we have people who are um, moving in that direction, and uh, you see them acting out, for example, in the killing in Planned Parenthood just this past week. So what well, you're saying, yeah, go ahead, Peter, please. Just one more point related to what Michael is saying, which is that what Michael is describing in part explains the popularity of the people being drawn to Donald Trump, because uh, Donald Trump is offering to make America great again. He's offering a substituted fantasy of worth and value that people can become identified with in an imaginary way by being for him instead of being uh, humiliated, marginalized, and poor. That's a, that's a very powerful appeal, that imagery. Um, where do we stand right now with regard to... Uh the Syrian refugees. Do you know what the present uh, what, what the present situation is with regard to our government's position? The, the government has said they want to take in ten thousand. Uh, um, Republicans are saying no. They really intend to take in two hundred and fifty thousand. In other words, just one lie after another being put put uh, against Obama and uh, his his very inadequate plan, his very minimalist plan. And uh, so the House, the House of Representatives with um, the whole Republican Party plus 50 Democrats passed a, um, uh, a measure last, uh, just before Thanksgiving, the week before Thanksgiving, banning the United States from taking in any new refugees. Um, that has not yet been voted on by the Senate. And so we are urging people... Um, we at uh, Tikkun and our network of spiritual progressives are urging people to call their U.S. senator and to to ask them to vote against that kind of measure that would um, preclude uh, any refugees uh, uh, being taken in from from the, amongst the Syrian refugees. I'm reading here from a CBS News poll just taken this week. Which comes closer to your opinion about Syrian refugees who want to come to the United States? Uh, should allow, should not allow, or uncertain? Of, uh, of all people polled, 47% said we should allow, 50% said we should not allow, and unsure, uh, 3%. 
when it was broken down by uh, Republicans and Democrats, the Republicans said 27% of the Republicans said should allow, 68% should not. Democrats, 63% said should allow, and 36% said should not. So you've got a complete reversal between the Democrats and the Republicans. As you might guess, the independents were split even, as is the entire population. Independents, 47% should allow, and 49% should not allow. There's much more agreement in in the United States, uh, gentlemen, when it comes to uh, security clearance or vetting of the people, whereas uh, 78% of our public thinks that the vetting is is necessary, 15% say not necessary, and there's general agreement upon uh, Republicans and Democrats. Republicans 87, Democrats 77% think that the vetting is important. Um, and in terms of whether or not they propose a, a, a threat to the security of the United States, the re- and this is very much related to what you gentlemen have been talking about with regard to fear, uh, but the fear to a certain extent is real and we can't deny it, the Republicans yeah. feel that the, that these people present a major threat. 66% of the Republicans think they're a major threat. Only 33% of Democrats think they're a major threat. Why do you think this is? What's going on here? Is this ideology over reality or what? Well, the first thing I want to say is that the 47% of the American public that want, um, that support uh, uh, the refugees coming here is a very, very impressive figure to me. I mean, it's, it's something that we ought to celebrate because um, uh, that's a lot of people. That's a lot of people. That's a, 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 a great base of people who have um, already transcended all the ideology and all the lies and all the distortions that they are being bombarded with day after day. Okay? I mean, uh, you know, even the New York Times has had, you know, when, there was a, when there's a, um, a terrorist act against, um, uh, against white people by peoples of color, uh, it's a huge front page story for days when it's when it's the normal terrorist acts of of white people against black people in this society it goes it disappears very quickly from consciousness so hey that's terrific that we that there are that many people who feel that way despite the barrage in the other direction I want to put um, what you're saying into perspective Michael about the celebrating that 47 percent of Americans think we should allow them in in 1939 a Gallup poll asking Americans if they would support bringing German refugee children. We're not talking about possible terrorists. There was no question of whether these children were terrorists or not. They definitely were not. The opinion poll about bringing 10,000 German refugee children into the United States, the public opinion was two to one against. Yeah, so there's been a move, and I think it, uh, partly it is due to the slow abs- absorption into the consciousness of what the Holocaust meant and how how terrible it was and how terrible it was that the United States closed its doors. But nevertheless, okay, we've got 50% who are against that right now. Um, those people, many of them can be worked with. I think that, that what, if I wanted to say one thing, it's don't give up hope. You know, it's possible to change this world. It is possible to transform consciousness. And that's why we've created this um, Tikkun magazine, which I hope some of your listeners will 
subscribe to. It's a great gift to give people for 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 Hanukkah or for Christmas. It's not just a Jewish magazine. It's interfaith and welcoming to atheists and and uh, to uh, secular humanists. It's not about Judaism. It's a it's a, it covers a wide range of different topics. And people can go to our website tikkun.org. T i k k u n org slash subscribe, or just look at tikkun.org on the website and you get a feel of what's in the magazine. Peter um, Gable, tell us, what does tikkun mean? To heal and repair. So tikkun olam is to heal and repair the world. Yeah, so we have this organization. We, don't want, we have an organization called the Network of Spiritual Progressives. People can come and join us, help us create a chapter in where you're living, um, there are uh, activities here, as I say, uh, every, you don't have to be Jewish to come to our Hanukkah celebration, uh, which is uh, on December 13th at the, uh, at the North, uh, North, Bray, North, Gate, uh, North Bray Community Church. And you can go uh, look at that up at our synagogue, B-E-Y-T, B-E-Y-T-T-I-K-K-U-N. Michael, I, I, heard a, I heard a rumor, Michael Lerner, that you're going to be giving a talk in Casper, California this week. Is that accurate? Yes, I'm giving a talk uh, at, the, um, at the synagogue on Saturday night uh, in Casper, um, the uh, synagogue there, but uh, I don't... Michael, I don't Michael, have the exact address. I, I do, and I can tell you, uh, it, oh, it's good. in. It's, well, you don't need an address because Casper, California, is just one block, and so you oh. can't miss the synagogue. <laughs> but here's an interesting thing: I don't know if you know, the synagogue in Casper, California, was a church for 150 years. And what when time that is the talk, what, and what am I talking about? <laughs> <laughs> now you're way ahead of me. You're going to be talking about what Michael Lerner brings to the world, and and that's very important. And it's a privilege to have you in Casper. California, at, and that, that synagogue was a church, and when that church went out of business for reasons I don't know some years ago, the only people they would sell that church to was the local Jewish community, and so they did. So, uh, folks, if you're, if you're local and you're listening, you can hear Michael Lerner uh, at the Casper community, and you can look it up online. It's probably at 7 or 8 o'clock this, uh, this weekend. This Saturday night, I believe. It's this yes. Saturday night. I'm also speaking at a... Um at the uh, college there um, on... Mendocino on, College? When are you speaking at Mendocino College, Michael? Six o'clock on Thursday night. This uh, coming Thursday? Yeah. Okay, so you're uh, going to be in town for a couple of days. I am. Are you up there? Uh, I'm not only up here, but I'm going to offer you a place to stay. You can stay at our home if you need a place. We'd be happy to do it. I'll talk to you about that offline. Okay. Uh, Peter, you get to have the last word because we're running out of time. What do okay, you, what do you want to... Please. If people, yeah, if people are interested in the ideas that I was expressing and the longing for mutual, authentic mutual recognition and the way that fear of the other blocks that in our culture, please uh, get my recent book, Another Way of Seeing, Another Way of Seeing Essays on Transforming Law, Politics, and Culture. Uh, Where can they get it, Peter? How can they, they find it? They can that? get it on Amazon. Just order it on Amazon. That's okay, easy. folks. Or, or at your local bookstore up here. Another way uh, of but, seeing Peter Gable's last name is G-A-B-E-L. Peter Gable. <laughs> Michael, you're terrific. You are, you're a wonderful spokesperson for spirituality and for what you believe in. Peter Gable, it's been nice uh, connecting with you. I'm glad to have you on the program even briefly. And I, if you'll send me a copy of uh, of seeing uh, Another Way of Seeing, I'll, I'll review it. Maybe we'll do a whole program on it it sounds okay, it, yeah. it sounds important 
It is. Gentlemen, thank you very much for joining us today on Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. It's been uh, it's been educational and illuminating, and, and, and always a privilege uh, to have you on, uh, Rabbi Michael Lerner. And, uh, thank you so much, Richard. Great, great thank to be you, able Richard. To be and thank you. you all for listening to today's broadcast of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, which is made possible by our KZYR staff and our in-studio engineer, my dear friend Michael Delora. Please join us in again in exactly two weeks at 9 o'clock. No, that's wrong. Join us on January 5th at 9 o'clock. We're taking a vacation, going to Mexico for my annual two-week vacation. I'll see you on January 5th, everyone. Wishing you a healthy and happy holiday season.